Hey, I want to welcome everybody to uh, the beginning of our brand new series called Culture Shift. I hope you're excited as, as I am about this series. It's been something that our pastoral staff has been talking about for uh, really a couple months and uh, just been kind of working behind the scenes on this series and uh, talking a lot about what's going on in our own culture and the shift that we see happening and just felt like it was an obligation for us as pastors uh, to really get our church prepared and ready for what is happening right now in our culture and then what is to happen in our culture. And uh, how many of you know things are changing Amen. all around us? Uh, it's just changing. And so we're going to spend the next six weeks all the way up to, uh, right up to Thanksgiving, going into this series and looking through the book of Daniel. And uh, I'll, I'll tell you why we're going to do the book of Daniel in just a minute. And, but uh, we're going to be doing this, and I hope you stick it out and, and uh, can be here for as many as you possibly can, because each week we're going to build on each other. And, uh, and it's going to be a really, really great series. Uh, I, I'm glad you're here for the first one, because today we're laying the foundation of, of the title of today's message is When, when Culture Shifts. When culture shifts. And so let's pray and then we'll, we'll get started. Father, we love you. Thank you so much for what you're doing in us and through us. We thank you more importantly, God, that, that Jesus is king. And he still rules and reigns. And there's nothing that worries him. He, he has the whole world. As we sing, even in, as children, he's got the whole world in his hands. And God, that is such a comfort to us as Christians. So God, I pray today that you would open up our ears and our hearts to hear you and to see you in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. amen. How many of you, children's church, Sunday school, um, heard of the story of Daniel before? Uh, many different stories within the story of Daniel you've probably heard. How many of you have heard the story of Daniel in the lion's den? It's probably the most popular one. Daniel gets thrown into a lion's den, and all of a sudden, all the lions are on Metafast and um, just not eating anything. They're going, they're going vegan on this day, and uh, no meat, and, and spared Daniel. We got the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. How I many you know that story? story of Shad and me and, and Benny, if you've watched any VeggieTales. Um, these guys did not bow down to the idol and therefore were thrown into a furnace and um, did not get burned. Jesus was in the middle of the fire with them and they came out of the fire and just incredible story, incredible story. And, and I've always learned within these stories as a kid, this was my kind of takeaway. As a kid, I was always kind of taught if you have the faith of Daniel and if you have the, the courage and the steadfastness of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and the faith to stand up and not compromise, that what happened to Daniel and to Shad and Meshach and Benny, what happened to those guys would happen to you. But if you go and you look throughout history, that's really not the case. Because here's the deal. In the centuries following, many Christians were thrown to lions. And there was only one that didn't get eaten. And his name was Daniel. Guess what all the other one did? Yeah, they wanted meat on those days. There's been many Christians who have been burned at the stake. As far as I know, there's only three guys who were not burned. That's the stories in Daniel. So the truth is, and, and all these people that were martyred for their faith, I don't think that they had less faith. I don't think that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had greater faith than they did. And, and therefore, they were burned and, and they were eaten by lions. I don't think that was the case. I think 
we have taken the story of Daniel and extracted some principles that maybe are not the case. Does God want you to have firm faith? Absolutely. Does God want you to have convictions and not compromise? Absolutely. But that's not the theme of Daniel. The theme of Daniel, if you really were to go and look at it, it's the, it's the theme that God is sovereign, that God's in control, that God saves people. And the bigger theme of it all is how to be Christians who live in a dark world. That's the real theme of Daniel, because you're going to see in just a minute, Babylon, which is the primary city of Daniel, is a evil place. And yet the Bible gives us, through the story of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the sto- God, God shows us how to be Christian people in a really dark environment. How many of you work offshore? <laughs> okay, so you may, you, may, you may relate to this in some degree, If you work in a secular environment, you may relate to this in some degree. If you go home and your your family is secular, and maybe you're the only one who serves the Lord, maybe your husband doesn't serve the Lord, whatever it is, I think for all of us in here, we can take these sermons and apply them to the areas of our lives on how do we stand firm in faith, how do we have convictions, how do we not compromise in a place where everybody's compromising, but you don't have to. And that is really the idea behind Daniel. And so today I want to begin with this question. Here's the question. How do we as believers respond when culture shifts? What do we do when the values that we hold so dear to our faith are changing all around us? What do we do when the values that we hold dear, nobody else holds dear? And so if you've, if you've gone and looked throughout culture right now, you don't have to look really far to see that the world around us is changing rapidly, and uh, we want to prepare you for this. Let me define culture real quick. If you want to write this down, I don't know if it's in your notes or not, but you can write this down. Culture is this. When we talk about a culture shift, culture can be defined as the beliefs and customs of a particular society, group, place, or time. Culture can be defined as the beliefs and customs of a particular society, group, place, or time. If you were to really strip it down, it's the way of thinking and living and behaving in a certain place. You go into a certain culture. If you go into a third world or into another country, there's a certain type of culture that that, that, that has, and it, it informs the way that they think. It informs the way that they behave. It informs the way that they talk. Culture informs everything. And here in the U.S., we have a certain type of culture. And our culture is shifting because when this country was founded, it was founded on the Bible. It was founded on God. It was founded on the Ten Commandments. It was founded on, on the, the authoritative word of God being the filter in which we do everything from making laws to, to our universities. Do you know that majority of the universities in our nation were founded as Christian universities? But not so much anymore. So now that, that shift is taking place within our, our, our nation and things are changing. So here's the question that I want to answer first off right out of the gate. Why are we studying the book of Daniel? It's a great question. Let's, let's answer with four answers. Here's our four answers. Number one, why are we studying the book of Daniel? Number one, Daniel's situation is becoming increasingly similar to ours. It's becoming increasingly similar to our own. For most of Daniel's life, you're going to find out that he is a believer in a culture that doesn't hold to his, his values. Daniel was deported into Jerusalem uh, from Jerusalem to Babylon at 15. We're going to read today, everything that we're going to read today is Daniel when he's 15 years old. Okay, so for every teenager in here, listen, you need to listen to this message. 
Because this is Daniel at 15 years old. And Daniel lived in Babylon until he was 90, 75 years. 75 years. We actually believe that um, Daniel never went back home. We'll, we'll get to that in just a minute. But Daniel's in a situation that's similar to ours. Number two, Daniel's, Daniel's prophecies. Half of the book is practical. Half of the book is prophecies. The prophecies that are in Daniel may all soon be fulfilled. They may all soon be fulfilled. This book is filled with dreams and visions and prophecies about the end times. How many of you, really, if you're really honest, have questions about the end times? Raise your hand. We will do an entire week on end times. We'll tell you when that one is. It's next week. No, it's not. But come anyways. Um, in the weeks to come, we're going to discover what, how, the, how the connection between what's going on in Daniel's life and what's happening right now are actually linked more than you even know. His prophecies are even bef- being fulfilled as we speak. Number three, Daniel's God. This is, this is, if there's anything, you need to get this one. Daniel's God is our God too. Daniel's God is our God too, and he's still on the throne, and that's really good news. And this is going to be really mo- one of the most important lessons of this entire book. God's in charge. God's in charge, simple and clear. God's in charge, and he is in charge. Here's the thing. God's in charge of nations. He's in charge of families. He's in charge of individuals. He's in charge of the past. He's in charge of the present. He's in charge of the future. Here's the really cool thing about God. God is outside of time. Now, this, is, this can be very mind-blowing if you actually try to really think about it, but God doesn't work in like 6 a.m., 6 p.m. He doesn't work tomorrow and yesterday and three years ago. God is. So God is Yesterday, God is today, and God is tomorrow. The Bible says he's the same yesterday, today, and, and forever. And so God is outside of time, which means, listen, this is where it should bring great comfort to you. God's already in tomorrow, even though you're not. God's already in a year from now, 10 years from now, forever from now. God is there. Not like he's going to catch up to it when we get there. Like he's already there. And the good news about that is when you're not there, but he's there, that means he knows and you don't. And that brings a comfort to us to know that God is still in charge. And, and, and here's really the driving point behind this. I want to help you get to a point where you will trust, listen to me, you will trust an unknown future to a God that controls the future. That's my goal. And that was really good and a bit a great place to say amen. Um, God desires, God's desire, is our desire, is that you will trust your unknown future to a God who controls the future. That's our desire. So if there's anything in Daniel, because there's a lot of unknown. How many know there's a lot of unknown? You know, you hear people saying this all the time, man, I don't want to, man, I don't want to raise my kids in this kind of world. What do they mean by that? Because it's it's a rough world. It's got some bad stuff going on. But here's the joy in that. God's in control. God's in charge. You're going to see this as we get into this series, this point more and more. And number four, the greatest example in the Bible of a godly person that experienced a, rap, a rapid and massive culture shift is Daniel. So with that, without any further ado, let's go to Daniel 1. Okay, now if you don't know, to Dan- don't know where Daniel is, don't worry. The, 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 uh, the table of contents is not a sin, okay? 
You can read it, all right? So if you don't know where Daniel is, go to the first couple of pages in your Bible, and you can look at Daniel. It's in the major prophets. It's actually right after Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and then Daniel. Daniel. So go find there. It's probably like page 887 or something. I don't know. 737. Okay, it's page 737. 637. So the question is, which one's right? No, I'm joking. All right, here we go. So let's, let's set this up real quick. This is going to be a real, more of a teaching series than a preaching series, which I'm really excited about because I'm definitely much more of a teacher than a preacher. So we're going to teach you a little bit, some stuff today, and some background of Babylon and some background of this book um, but let me, let me set up a little bit of the background here. So let me give you a, a couple of things. So Jesus, when Jesus shows up on the scene, it goes from BC to AD. Okay. Zero right in the middle. Jesus, Jesus shows up on the scene. He changes time. I mean, all of our time, 2014 is recorded because of Jesus. You know that, right? That's not Muhammad or Buddha or anything. We even record time because of Jesus. Jesus shows up on the scene. Zero. Okay, so here's, let's track where, where's Daniel in this place. If you were to back up a thousand years, that would be the life of David. Okay, if you were to back up a thousand years, if you were to fast forward another 400, so that means 600 years before Jesus is Daniel. So this is where we're at. We're in about 600 BC, 600 to 530. And y'all know how BC works. It goes from like large numbers to small numbers. So 600 and 500, okay. Um, so that's how this is working. So we're in about 600 years before Jesus. And uh, you're going to find out in just a minute, Daniel is going to get extracted from Jerusalem. Jerusalem's his home. He's a Hebrew, Hebrew boy. He's a Hebrew teenager. And he's going to be imported from Jerusalem into Babylon. And, and he's going to be a hostage there. He's going to be trained and equipped. He's eventually going to become prime minister and counselor to some of the most mightiest men in all of Babylon. God's going to give him a lot of favor. But I, I want us to look at something here. And before we get into some points about what happens when culture shifts, let's look at this. What is the ways that we respond when culture shifts? Okay, now here's the deal. I don't know if you guys have been following the news lately, but sh- culture is shifting even more, at a more rapid pace. Anybody saw what happened in Houston this week? Absolutely. Anybody? Yeah. The mayor of Houston subpoenaed five pastors to turn over their sermons because she was mad at them. Do you know why she was mad at them? She was mad at them because the mayor pushed an agenda that if a man wants to go into a woman's bathroom, if he feels like he's a woman, he's allowed to. Now imagine you are a woman walking into a bathroom and there's a man that walks into there and it's legal. And so the pastors decided that they were going to take a stand against that. And they did a petition and got like 60,000 signatures that said, we're not standing for this. And they only need 17,000. And they submitted all of the signatures. And the mayor and the city attorney disregarded it and went ahead and went through with the bill anyways. And so the pastors, as, as, as you know, and Christians in that city were in an uproar. And so in regards to that, the city uh, uh, mayor decided to push her agenda onto the pastors and then started going after them personally after their churches and tried to subpoena that. So that way she could look and see what they were talking about. And as many of you know, when you touch the church, which is God's bride, you're in trouble. And so this mayor didn't even know what she was touching. 
And so over the course of these past probably four or five days, the, all of the pastors from all de- different denominations have been rallying together. And here's the, here's the thing about how the enemy works. What the enemy thinks he's going to do to destroy the church is what actually unites, strengthens, and brings the church even greater. It's awesome how it works. You go read the book of Acts and see how when, when the, the Christians were being thrown to lions and killed, the church got stronger and grew faster. And so persecution for us, however much we hate it and don't want it and it's discomfort, in the midst of the darkness, the church shines brighter, which means God gets more glory and more people come to know Jesus. And that's what's happening right now. If you've been following, I, 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 man, I just flipped open. I don't even read, I don't, I don't watch the news um, and, and I just don't have time to, but I, I flipped over, I have the, um, an, a couple apps that are news apps and I flipped it open like two days ago and saw that there was um, a, a that people were fighting in, in the state of Texas yet again to reopen abortion clinics that were happening because a lot of the abortion clinics got shut down because they were, the way that they were doing it was unethical and, and the state of Texas raised the bar of what a real abortion can be because we're still trying to abolish it, but they're raising it. So no late-term abortions and a lot of those things that are happening nowadays. And, and so, but there's a whole group of people coming in to try to get more of them because there's only seven of them left in the state. Anyways, I say all that to say the topics of homosexuality, the topics of abortion, the topics of marriage, the topics of, there's a lot of topics that are going on nowadays. A lot of those are getting heightened and a lot of those are getting a lot of play right now. Even there was a big church here in the United States, actually in the world, that just got slammed yesterday for their stance on homosexuality. And so it's happening right now at a rapid pace. And here's the deal. Let me tell you something. And I mean this with a lot of fear in my own voice. We've got to have a reason for why we believe what we believe. And we have to have the conviction to stand up for that. But with humility. See, because some people want to stand up for what they believe and just throw spears and darts and try to just... See, because here's the deal. When you do that, you don't win anybody over. But to be able to stand up and say, listen, my basis is on the Word of God. That's our ultimate authority. And for our culture, the Bible is no longer their authority. They are their own authority. So this is what you do when you're your own authority. You take the Bible and you make it what you want it to say. This is how this works. And we do this too, actually. Is we find out what lifestyle we want to live, and then we go find Scripture to back up our lifestyle. Versus taking the Scripture and rearranging our life around what the Scriptures say. We like to take what our life is and rearrange the Bible around what we want it to say. And that's what's happening right now. Instead of the Bible being the authoritative word of the Lord in our lives, it governs and and informs everything that we do. The Bible is just a good piece of advice. And when we want it to, to, to add to our fuel, we'll take some bits and pieces and add it to the thing. Y'all seeing what I'm saying? I'm telling you, you're going to see it. It's happening all over. And so we've got to be people of the word. We've got to know what the word says. Can't just be spending our little two-minute devotions. Like we've got to really dive into the word and find out what the Bible has to say about all of these topics and get informed in what these say. And then from there, we have a posture of humility before people. And you're going to see this with Daniel. Daniel was in one of the most evil places in the world. And yet in the midst of that, well, let's get to that. No, 
Let me get to the three responses we have when culture shifts around us. I'm sorry, I gotta get off. Number one, when culture shifts around us, we wanna do this first one, retreat. Okay, let's run to, run to Montana. Let's go grab all of our MREs that we didn't eat at Katrina and uh, Gustav, and let's get up to Montana, and let's go build a fortress, and let's get a bunch of trees around us, and let's get a bunch of ammunition, and let's just do some rapture practice. We want to retreat and run from the culture. But that's not biblical. It's not biblical. The second one is we want to compromise or surrender. Meaning the culture is pushing so hard on us in whatever agenda they're trying to push, we just give in to it. We capitulate it meaning we compromise and surrender to it, and we just say, well, it's just too big of a fight. There's nothing that I can do. Might as well just go with it. It's just the new way. You know what? Just, it's just the new way of thinking. If the Bible is written today, it probably would have changed a little bit. It's kind of old way of thinking, and here's the new way that we need to do it. And we give in, and we stop fighting. That's the second way. But that's not biblical either. The third one is we engage in love. We engage in love. Meaning when things get darker, we get brighter. Meaning that we exist. God made you, created you, had you born in this time, during this history, knowing, remember, God is above time, so he knows how bad it's going to be. He's not surprised. And guess what? He puts his people right in the middle of it. And why does he do that? So that way you would be light to a dark world, that you would be salt to a flavorless world, that you would have the answers to what everybody's looking for. That's us. That's us. We are the answer to this world's problem. Well, it's not, we're not the answer. Let me get that straight. He's the answer. We have the answer. Y'all with me? Okay. Y'all getting something out of this so far? I hope you are. So the book of Daniel is broken down into two, two key sections. You're going to see the first six chapters are all about the practical, all about these stories that we know of. And then the last six chapters, people really don't like to talk about it because the prophetic its where he speaks of future events and things that have not yet happened. Some of them have. And, uh, and so we're going to do that. So let's identify, before we dive into Daniel 1, let's identify the three primary characters, the main players that we're going to see uh, in, in really the, the story of Daniel Fully. So here's the first one. The first player in this story uh, is Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians are kind of the first one. Babylon is where Iraq is right now, 500 miles east of Jerusalem. Babylon's actually gone. It's, it's Iraq. But um, the Babylonians represented the world system in a culture that is hostile to the people of God. When you look at Babylon, Babylon is a symbol of evil. Let me tell you how evil Babylon is. When, when, when the angels talk about something that's just terrible, they don't go, well, that's like Las Vegas, or that's like you know, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, or that's like Iraq. You know what they say? They say that place is like Babylon. Revelations, I think it's 17 or 18, talks about that when God's had enough and and they come, they're going to say, fall, fall is the great of Babylon. That's in the end. That's like in the end. Fall, great is the fall of Babylon. Babylon is a symbolism and an imagery of something that's greatly evil. But in here, it's not symbolism. This is the real deal. These are some evil, evil people. Nebuchadnezzar is their king. 
He is evil. Nebuchadnezzar is so evil. Here's the deal. You're going to read in, in Daniel 1. Daniel 1, Nebuchadnezzar goes into Jerusalem, takes all of the things that are godly, all of the, uh, the things that are in the temple, and he takes them and he brings them to his temples that are worshiping demons and devils, and he takes God's things and he puts them into his temple to, to show how great and how powerful he is. We're going to find out a little bit what God does to Nebuchadnezzar, which is absolutely hilarious. But uh, he does some things to, to Nebuchadnezzar just to remind him who really God is. So there's Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. The second characters that we're going to see is Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these guys represent in this story, they represent really us as believers in a world. They have a desire to obey God. They have a desire to honor God in the midst of a dramatic culture shift. And so these are the people that we're going to relate to in this story. And then last and thirdly is our sovereign Lord. God places his children in the world on purpose and for purpose. You have to understand that. And he is the one that is behind the scenes orchestrating all of these events. Everything that's going to happen in the book of Daniel is God orchestrating all this stuff that's happening. If you go and you read Daniel chapter 1, you know what, let's just get there. Daniel chapter 1, uh, I believe, it's not in your notes, but I believe it's either verse 1 or verse 2. This is what it says. It says, uh, it's verse 2. It says, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. So there's the king of Judah over Jerusalem, and then there's the there's the wicked king, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. He comes to Jerusalem and he besieges it. And now watch this. This is very key. And if you want to underline it, I would encourage you to do this. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands. You know what that means. God gave Jerusalem to the wicked king. Who did it? God did it. God did it. It's the same as you read of the story of Jesus when Jesus goes out into the wilderness to be tempted for 40 days. The Bible says it's the Spirit of the Lord that led him there. And a lot of times we wonder why we're in cultures that are just crazy and why are we in situations and environments that are just ungodly. And guess what? Maybe God put you there. And we're always praying, God, get me out of here. Right? God, get me out of this place. But maybe God's wanting to do something inside of you to impact the people in that environment. And so here we go. God allows these guys to be captured. So let me set up what's happening in Daniel chapter 1. Daniel and his friends are hanging out. They went to, you know, First Baptist Church of Jerusalem or something. I don't know. And uh, they had youth group that night. And uh, all his friends, him and Shad and Meshach and Bendigo and all these guys are just chilling out after, after church and uh, maybe playing some basketball or something outside. And they look up and they see a cloud coming their way. Now, in, you know, in Jerusalem, it's very dusty, and so it's normal, you know, to see that's happening, but they're noticing that the cloud is getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and it's swelling, and it's coming closer and closer and closer, and as it's getting closer, they're realizing that it's not just a dust cloud. That's chariots, and those aren't just any normal chariots. Those are Babylonian chariots, and so what ends up happening is the Babylonians then come in and surround these three guys, four guys actually, surround these four guys, and guess what they do? Anybody ever seen the movie Taken? They were taken. Now, there's no Liam Neeson in this one that like, goes and seeks revenge, but uh, that would be sweet. But there's, they're, they're taken. Now, imagine this. You send your kids here to youth group, and you come here to pick up your kids. You're like, hey, where's, my, where's Daniel? 
Meshach, Meshach. We hate to tell you this, but I mean, this is what's going on. They never see their parents again. Taken hostage, brought to, brought to Babylon. They are blindfolded, brought there, and then I'm just imagining this that's going on. They get there, and when they wake up, they're in a new culture with new people, and here's the crazy thing, a new language. They don't know anybody, what anybody's saying. Totally new language. Totally new, new language of what's, what's going on. And so they're in a totally different culture than when they woke up that first morning. And so this is where I want us to talk today, is what happens when culture shifts? What happens when you wake up and you're in a different culture, like we are right now? It's kind of feel like we're like kind of waking up and there's just, man, culture's changing all around us. What do we do? And what is the culture trying to do? What happens when culture shifts? Let's take some notes. Number one, and then we're going to read in Daniel 1. First thing is this. When culture shifts, culture attempts to give us a new language, a new learning, and new laws. New language, new learning, and new laws. Now let's read. Daniel chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. I'm actually going to I'm going to read it up here with you guys. <clears throat> it says this. It says, the, the, the king instructed, so this is King Nebuchadnezzar. King Nebuchadnezzar instructs Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles. So, so he's specifically telling his, his VP of human resources, hey, I want you to go to Jerusalem. I want you to find noble men. I want you to find strong men. I want you to find the best of the best. Now this is Daniel and his buddies. And look at what they are. These are young men in whom there's no blemish. They're good looking. So they look, they look good. Um, they're gifted in all wisdom. They're possessing knowledge and quick to understand who had ability to serve in the king's palace and whom they might teach the language and the literature of the Chaldeans. Now, Chaldeans and Babylonians, those are synonymous. They're the same. So if you see Chaldeans throughout this, it's Babylonians. And, and the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank, and three years of training for them so that at the end of that time, they might serve who? The king. Now, you could call this Operation Assimilation. The whole goal of the king of Nebuchadnezzar was to take these boys, have his right-hand man go find the cream of the cop Jewish boys, bring them back to his place, and then for the next three years, they would, be, they would have a full-ride scholarship to Babylon University. All expenses paid, three years in our school, and then what they would do is they would go into this school, and then those teachers were the Ivy League of all of Babylon. They would teach them the Babylonian culture, the Babylonian language, the Babylonian literature, the Babylonian religion, because a lot of Babylonian religion was about false gods, so a lot of it was that. Teach them all of these things uh, would happen, science, math, astrology, commerce, and the whole object of the goal was that these boys would then, they would extract all of the God things in their hearts and they would implant all of the Babylonian culture into theirs. So that was the goal of King Nebuchadnezzar was for them to extract one thing and to implant another. And that's very clever and that's very seductive of how uh, the King Nebuchadnezzar. Now I want you to see a parallel here real quick. Anytime God is about to do something mighty on the earth and the enemy knows about it, the enemy goes after young people. Now, I want you to see this, okay? 
So who does King Nebuchadnezzar go after? 15-year-olds, right? He's going after the 15 and give me the young kids. Give me the young guns, the wise ones. Give me those guys. Okay, I'll spend three years. They'll be 18, and these guys are going to be some of my best guys. I'm going to train them up. Now, notice something. If you go and you track throughout the Bible, now follow me. You go and you track throughout the Bible. Every time God was going to bring a deliverer or a savior or do something mighty in the earth, the people that found out about it, what did they go and do? Let's start with Moses. So Moses is going to be the deliverer of God's people. And when Pharaoh finds out about Moses, what does he decide to do? It's the whole reason he's got to be in a basket. Kill all of the boys, two and younger. Right? So his mom puts him in a basket, sells him down the river, and, and the story is from there. Kill all the boys, two and younger. Okay, let's fast forward. Let's go to New Testament. Jesus is about to show up on the scene. The Savior of the world. And Nero finds out, I mean, Herod finds out, Herod finds out that there's going to be a savior, a promised one. All of his men say, we see the star, it's happening. So what does Herod do? Kill all of the two-year-old boys. Why? Because when God wants to do something mighty in the earth, oftentimes he does it through young people. And the one way that the enemy can stop what God wants to do in this earth is to kill all of the young people. Now let me ask you this. Let's fast forward to today. One of the number one things that kills young people is what? Abortion. 40 million babies. Do you think that the enemy knows what's going to happen in the end times? And do you not think that his whole strategy is to get young mothers to think that they don't need that baby? The enemy's clever. He understands what's at stake. Here's the deal. The enemy knows he already lost. So his goal now is to go after young people. So that, I'm going to just tell you right now, that is why it is so important for our church to be involved in the elementary school, to be involved in the high school, because the enemy is after them like none other. And if the enemy can get them, guess who's your leader in five years, ten years? Guess who is? They are. So we should be mindful of how the enemy works and go before him and get them saved before they even have a chance to step into the kingdom of darkness. Y'all with me? I want, my ki- I, mean, I want my kids to be in the kingdom of light all the time. I don't even want them to have to taste that stuff. But I want to walk them through all that. And we see that in here that the enemy goes after the young people. He, he understands how this works. He always targets, and our culture targets the young. And so we see this here. The first step is they are going to teach them everything that is in Babylon University. They're going to, deal, uh, they're going to pour that into them. Now, now, let's just step back and even look at our culture right now. Do you know that there are a number of teachers, high school, junior high, and college professors right now that are adamant about destroying the Christian faith? Do you understand that? If any of you have gone to a secular college, or even, even in Louisiana, there are professors who their whole job of what they want to do is to teach things that are totally contrary to the Bible. And we have got to, this is, this is another startling statistic, 80% of teenagers that are raised in church 
80% of them, when they graduate high school and go to college, leave the faith. 80%, eight out of 10. That's a problem. You know why? Because we haven't taught them how to have their own faith. Their faith has been our faith. And so guess what? When you get to college, it don't work like that anymore. You gotta have your own faith. And we've gotta be a church that equips and trains and raises up the next generation of young people that rise up and go into these secular cultures and go, you can try to identify me and you can try to change me, but I'm so grounded in the word of God that I know who I am. I know what I believe. Amen? Amen. These guys are allowed to get proper education. Now here's the deal. Our culture doesn't want to teach you how to think. They want to teach you what to think. This is really key here. Our culture that doesn't honor God will always try to tell you what you need to think, not how to think. They're not going to tell you how you need to think. They're going to tell you what you need to think. This is what's cool. This is what's right. This is what's wrong. This is what not teach you how to come to those conclusions. So the first thing is that he gives them a full ride scholarship to their Babylonian school. The second thing is he offers them free food from the king's buffet. And that's not in Jennings. Um, It was an all-you-can-eat, all the time, whatever you want from my buffet. And even back then, the king even knew that the way to get to a young man's heart was through. It's still true. It's still true from Daniel's time, and it's still true today. You want to get to a young man's heart? Feed him. And so our culture attempts to give us a new language, a new learning, a new law. Let's talk about the second one, and we're going to speed this thing up. Number two, our culture attempts to give us new labels. See, a culture that doesn't honor God will always try to rename you. Let's, let's look at this. Daniel chapter 1, verse 7. Look at this verse. It says, To them, the, ch- the chief of the eunuchs gave names. So they came in as Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. But now that they're in Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar said, No, we're going to change your name. We don't like those Hebrew God names. Here's your new name. The new name he gave Daniel was Belteshazzar. And to Hananiah, Shadrach, and to Mishael, Meshach, and Azariah, Abednego. See, Abednego, Meshach, and Shadrach were their Babylon names, not their Hebrew names. And Daniel and his friends were giving these new names, and they, they had the options of letting these names define them. So I wanted to just, just to show you, I made a little grid to show you what these new names meant for these guys. Can we throw that up? So... The Hebrew names is Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, and their names, Daniel's meant God is my judge. But the new name that that king gave him was Belteshazzar, which means protect the king. Protect the king. So one is God is my judge. The next one is to protect the king. And that's not like the king of kings. That's like protect King Nebuchadnezzar. Hananiah's meaning is the Lord is gracious. We don't like that. Let's go to Shadrach. That means the command of a coup. A coup was a Babylonian god. That's who a coup was. Mishael, who is like the Lord? Meshach, who is like a coup? Azariah, the Lord is my helper. 
Abednego, servant of the shining one. Now that is yet again referring to another Babylonian God. Now I want you to understand this. This is so, so important that we understand this. That while they didn't seem to protest these names verbally, their actions demonstrated that they were still loyal to their Jewish upbringings. And what you call someone has the power to define them and to give them identity. Let me show you how this works because all of us have probably been there. Did any of you have nicknames growing up in high school? Maybe nicknames that your parents gave you or maybe nicknames that other people gave you. Anybody have nicknames growing up? <clears throat> my grandmother had a nickname growing up. My, my grandmother, if anybody knows my grandmother, her name is Pete. Well, that's not her real name. Her real name is Alice. The reason that she got Pete was because as growing up as a little kid, she would pass out candy to all the neighbors and the neighbors would call her Sweet Pete. And so it just stuck, and now she's Pete, and we've always known her as Pete. But that was for something that was done well. Now, if you've been raised for any duration of time, you probably have gotten nicknames from somebody. And especially in high school, if you were bullied in any regards, you got nicknames there too. Meathead, Flea, you know, whatever. I mean, for me, growing up, my, my, my family would call me Joshy Washy. That's not like a masculine, like, makes you just feel, you know, like you get out on the baseball field, you're like, let's go, Joshy Washy. It's like, there's nothing in you that's like, let's go, you know, let's like, let's do this, you know. Like, keep, that, keep that on the, let's keep that inside. There's names that define you. This is why it's so important for us as family. Let me tell you, this is why it's so important for fathers to define their children and speak life over their children because I'm going to tell you right now, we counsel a lot of girls who their father said something over them. They were a mistake, never loved. And I'll, I'm not even going to get into the expl- expletives that people say over girls. It's sung in songs. So guess what your identity is when you sing that? I'm a Whatever guess what? You begin to walk out. That was the whole intentions of Nebuchadnezzar, that they wouldn't call them by Daniel and Hananiah. They would now call them by Belteshazzar. So now there's something inside of him that now is, no, now you're the commander of a coup. Now you protect the king. Your loyalty is no longer to your God. Your loyalty is to this God now. And that, isn't that how culture does it? Culture so wants to define you with something different. Culture so wants to define us, make us different. The Babylonian culture attempted to steal Daniel and his friend's identity. There's nothing worse than identity theft. Any of y'all ever had like something, like something stolen from you, and especially identity, where somebody took your identity and went and did something with it? Come on, there, that is the greatest violation that you could ever feel to know that somebody was doing something with your name. And Daniel and his friends had the potential of being victims to identity theft. But here's the great thing. Daniel and his friends knew their identity. And no matter what the culture tried to put on them, Daniel still stood firm. Here's the crazy thing about Daniel. Now listen to this. So Daniel was kidnapped. Daniel was castrated. Most people don't know that. He was kidnapped, he was castrated, and he had his name changed to honor Satan. I don't know about you, but that's a pretty bad week. It's a pretty bad week. But yet, when we read the story of Daniel, I want you to see this. Daniel chapter 1, verse 8. 
This speaks a lot about the, the faith that Daniel did have and the courage that God put inside of him. Daniel chapter 1, verse 8 says this, and this is how we respond when culture shifts. Daniel, it says, but Daniel purposed in his heart. You don't want to underline that. He purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested. Now, notice this. He requested. He didn't say, I'm not drinking that. I'm not eating that stuff. He actually went to the chief of eunuchs and said, would you mind if me and my guys didn't eat from this table? And that guy didn't give him an answer. The answer he actually gave him was, I actually fear the king more than I fear you, and he would kill me if I let him do that. So David appeals to the next guy that's in charge and says, do you mind if we don't? Listen, here's the deal. Let us not do this for 10 days. For 10 days, let us not eat. And if at the end of it, we look weaker and we look worse than all the other guys, then we'll go and eat that stuff. But if we look better and look healthier, then let us continue. And if you know the story, they do look better. The Bible says they actually look fatter eating vegetables. I don't know if there's a principle in there, but I'm not ascribing to it. In the vegetable category, some of, it just went right over some of you. It's all right. I need some tacos or something. Okay. Uh, this verse is important because he purposed in his heart and notice that he says that he would not defile himself with the portions of the king's delicacies. Daniel and his friends resisted in partaking the best that the culture had to offer. This was a smorgasbord of the greatest food in all of the land. They said, we're not going to do that. Here's three things that we need to stand on, and then we will wrap it up. We need to stand firm in our commitment to God. In this culture that is ever-changing, we have got to stand on our commitment to honor the Lord in everything. See, because here's the deal. When you make right decisions, it's always not the most popular one. And sometimes making the right decision in your life means at your work, when everybody else is cheating or everybody else is doing something a certain way, to skimp out on the job, you say, no, we're not doing that. Or no, I'm not doing that. And it may cost you more. It usually does to do the job right. It costs you more cost you more time. It costs you your reputation because everybody's mad at you now. Because maybe you got to stand up and in your standing up, you rat out all your guys. But you're going to stand up because you have a commitment to the Lord because the Lord says, or actually Paul says, that everything that we put our hands do, we work as unto the Lord. We talked about that and how the gospel impacts the way we work. But we stand firm in our commitment to God. Number two is we stand, we stand on our convictions. We'll talk about this a little bit more on how you actually develop your convictions. But we stand firm on our convictions. And then last but not least, we stand up with courage. Stand up with courage. We have to have courage in this world to stand up and say some things that maybe some other people wouldn't say. Remember, we do it in love and humility, but it doesn't mean that we don't say it. In 1980, a young man from... Rwanda was forced by his tribe to either renounce Jesus or die. And he refused to renounce Christ. And the night before, he was actually, when he did that, he was killed on the spot. The night before he was killed on the spot, he had written a letter, and it's called The Fellowship of the Unashamed. Some of you may have heard this before. 
But when they went to go to his house where he lived, they found this letter. And it was dated the night before he had passed away. And I want to read this to you because I found this so encouraging. This is what he said. I am part of the fellowship of the unashamed. I have Holy Spirit power. The die has been cast and I've stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed and my present makes sense and my future is secure. I am finished and done with low living, sight walking, small planning, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tame vision, worldly talking, cheap giving, and dwarfed goals. I no longer need preeminence or prosperity or position or promotion or platitude or popularity. I don't have to be right, first, top, recognized, praised, regarded, or rewarded. I now live by faith. I lean on his presence. I love by patience. I lift by prayer and I labor by power. My pace is set. My gate is fast. My goal is heaven. My road is narrow. My way is rough. My companions are few, but my guide is reliable and my mission is clear. I can't be bought or compromised. I detoured or lured away or turned back or deluded or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice or hesitate in the presence of adversity, negotiate the table of my enemies or ponder at the pool of popularity or meander in the maze of mediocrity. He says, I won't give up. I won't back up. I won't let up. I won't shut up until I've preached up and prayed up and paid up and stored up and spoken up for the cause of Christ. I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. I must go until he returns, give until I drop, preach until all know, and work until he stops me. And when he comes to get his own, he will, know how, he will have no problem recognizing me because my colors will be clear. Amen. That is a prayer. That is a prayer. It's a prayer that we pray over ourselves. Father, we love you. God, I just pray right now, God, in this moment, that you would solidify people's faith in you. God, that you would confirm and bring great comfort to them knowing that you are in control. And God, I know that there are a number of people who have walked into this place, God, and and when they walk out, they're walking into environments that are ungodly, that are evil, God, that are hard, that are rough. But Lord, we know that there's nothing that we walk through that you're not walking with us through. God, as we sang this morning, you are faithful. Never once have you left us on our own. God, never once, God, have you, have, have you caused us to, to be in isolation or, or even to feel fear, God, because you're with us. God, I pray right now, Lord, over every person in here, God, that you would remind them of your presence that is so near to them. That we don't have to be afraid of the culture God, that we don't have to run from the culture, but God, that you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, will give us the grace to engage it with love, to stand up in the midst of darkness and to be a light to this world. God, that the way that we parent is different. 
The way that we, we love our spouse is different. The way that we serve is different. The way that we work is different because our identity is not from culture. Our identity is from you. We are sons and daughters of the King. May we walk like that. May we speak like that. Lord, we right now, God, I rebuke the assignment of the enemy on every person that is trying to take them out. If there are those of you right now and you have just felt like the enemy has had an all-out assault on your faith, it has just felt like it has been under attack. If that's you right there, I want to pray for you. Would you just raise your hand all over this place? Wow, wow. Your faith has just been under attack. Wow, so many of you. Mm. Would you stand? Would you stand? If you raised your hand, would you stand? Come on. Jesus, 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 Jesus. Hey, church, one of, the, one of the things that we do as a church is we encourage and build up and strengthen those that are around us. And so would you just write, if you're right by them, would you just stretch your hands toward them? Maybe put your hand on their shoulder. We're gonna be, as a church, we're here to, to encourage you, to see faith filled in you, for you to walk out of here not feeling defeated, but knowing that you have a, a church body that's encouraging you, that's fighting with you. So, Father, we pray right now, God, over all those, Lord, that are standing, God, that have felt like their faith has just been an attack of the enemy. God, right now, would you solidify in them their assurance of their salvation, an assurance of your love that is steadfast towards them. God, may they walk out of this place with the weight of this world off of their shoulders. But God, cast on you. Your word says in 1 Peter for us to to cast all anxieties on you for you care for us. So right now in this moment, God, we cast every anxiety that we have, every fear of the unknown. God, we cast all of that on you right now. God, we ask right now, would you be an ever-present help? Would you confirm? Would you encourage? Would you uplift? God, we thank you for that right now over every person that's standing. Jesus, I pray, Lord, for us as a church, God, that we would be salt and light, that we would stand on a hill brightly, attesting to the goodness and the faithfulness of God even in the midst of the darkest times. God, we love you today, and we thank you that you love us. You love us. You love us. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen. Can we give the Lord praise? You can be seated.